So, thank you everyone uh, for coming and joining the two of us here today. Um, I'm based in London. I work for Google Arts and Culture, and uh, I'm based in uh, Oakland, California, and uh, I work for SciArc. Um, yeah. Let chance to start off. Oh. Sure, that'll make it easier. Yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> So we will be presenting together today, uh, back and forth, about uh, the importance of preserving our heritage at risk. And what I wanted to begin with is saying that, um, well, as everyone knows, we are connected by our shared global heritage uh, that is found around the world in different locations. And many people choose to travel to many of these locations to see and observe the, di the diversity that we share as humans around the globe. And of course, when we travel to these places, we find it also interesting to find out about the people who live there now and who lived there in the past. Because really, art and culture is the story of us. It's the story of who we are, where we come from, and it's also important for our next generation to learn the same story. So humans have been producing and creating art in different forms for thousands of years. We've been painting it on the walls of a cave. We have carved it into stone. We've even written it in books. But as many of us know, we don't have the opportunity to see all of this art in the same place at the same time which is a challenge. It's also difficult to travel to some of these locations. And what's important to note, because the topic of our talk is preserving heritage at risk, is that some of this, this that you see here, has actually still been preserved. But I just wanted to point out the last example in ancient Mexico. That is a, an example of one of four books that survived uh, the colonialism of, of uh, Central and South America, there were thousands of books that were burned there. So, and this is a story that we're going to present and show you that it is not a story of heritage that's being lost only today or only in the last 50 years. I want to bring that up to a point that heritage has been at risk throughout our past, throughout our story. And we have no internet, apparently. Could I have someone? <laughs> Should I disconnect and just use Wi-Fi? Yes, I do. Maybe we should just do Wi-Fi. Let's just remove it and use Wi-Fi. Sorry about that. Aha, and it's not there. Yeah, I am connected. Okay, well, anyway. So what I've just presented and stating about the preserving heritage at risk, that is the message and the story of what we both, at, at Google Arts and Culture and SIRC as well, we are focused in working uh, towards. Preserving that heritage and disseminating it and sharing it with the world using technologies that exist to us today. 
So many of you may be wondering, I'm going to speak for the first five, six minutes about Google Arts and Culture, then Liz will talk about uh, SciArc, and then we'll, we will explain the project that we have just launched together only two weeks ago. So you may be wondering, what is Google Arts and Culture? Many of you maybe have never heard of it, which is fine, because I'm going to introduce it to you today. So Google Arts and Culture is uh, a platform that provides technology to make the world's culture more accessible to anyone, anywhere, for free, using various means of technology and platforms and devices. So we do this, and, and of course, our art and culture is extremely diverse from arts to crafts and tangible heritage, history, street art. These are some of the projects that Google Arts and Culture has published or launched in the last five or six years, including performing arts and the natural wonders uh, of the, the wonders of the natural world as well, and natural history. Here's the background, basically, uh, so that if you're not aware, so at Google we have 20% projects, engineers, uh, people within Google have the opportunity to create their own 20% projects, and Google Arts and Culture represents one of those projects that grew immensely from its, from its uh, early days in uh, 2011 and 2012. And we've launched projects even up until just last year. One of them was focused on fashion called We Wear Culture, which is one of the largest collections of the stories of the clothes that we wear from around the world that is available online. But we feel that we're just getting started. So I say that, and we're just getting started in the short term. Uh, we've been able to do a lot, and that is only because of the connections and the partners and the cultural institutions that we work with in this example that I'll show, that we'll present later, is with SciArc. So we have uh, more than 3,000 uh, exhibits, online exhibits, that are all curated by the various museums and art galleries that we work with around the world, and more than 70 countries and 1,700 or more global partners. How do we do this? We do this by providing a tool for collection, uh, to present their collections, all the partners that work with us, storytelling platforms and ways to present those stories. We also use Google technology to present this to a wider audience to help empower partners and institutions, some of which are much bigger, of course, and have been around much longer than Google Arts and Culture is, but we just work with them to help uh, use innov innovative uh, technology to bring that message and story to the world. So we do provide some technology physical hardware, devices, to help institutions communicate and share their collections online. Some of these are uh, the art camera, for example, that was, uh, that's actually a, uh, Google, um, a, a Google camera that is used to make uh, gigapixel images, gigapixel resolution images. I'll show you an example in a moment. Museum view, if you're familiar with street view, right, you can click and, and explore in Google Maps. Museum View gives you the ability to click and explore and enter inside museums as well. And we also provide a tabletop scanner which can be used to document and digitize vast archives and put those, put those stories online. In this example I will show you in a moment is a recent pilot where we've used uh, 19th century glass plates that have been scanned to put online. So the art camera looks like this. And it's been used in many locations. It's been used to point up at ceilings. It's mainly been used to take high-resolution images of two-dimensional art that's hanging in museums. 
This is the example I wanted to show you today because it's relevant to this topic. This is the art camera being used to capture the Ghent altarpiece uh, at the moment that it came out of the, uh, the restoration studios, uh, studio work, this, the, the restorers were working on it, and now, thanks to uh, the art camera's capture, you can zoom in and see the details of medieval Ghent that are hidden, that were um, not as easily accessible or seen previously before. And the reason that I show you this, if many of you may or may not know, the Ghent altarpiece represents one of the world's most stolen artworks of all time. So this, the message is we can get this and, and present it online to people in different ways. Tabletop scanner, this is another example of uh, documenting journals from even the 19th century of an explorer who was, uh, who was exploring Central America and drawing and recording his travels there. But we've done this with many institutions around the world. We are uniquely uh, connected within a very large Google ecosystem. As many of you uh, understand, you know, Google has, we have multiple uh, parts within Google that, met, that do many different things, but then what is really exciting that we find uh, a lot of fun is that we kind of fit in the middle and we can use some of the, the other teams that love the, the partners and collections that we work with or people who have the passion for art uh, within Google them, itself and work with Google Cloud, work with uh, Daydream, Google Expeditions, which I don't have time to talk about uh, today, but that's a way of presenting 360 images in classrooms to children uh, around the world, and you can explore. You don't have to be a child to, to uh, explore. And of course, Earth and Maps. One of the examples of Museum View that I like to uh, present and say, I should probably change this slide to not be, it should be Museum, Street View and Outer Space View, because we recently launched the Street View from the inside of the International Space Station. We didn't send anyone from Google up there. We trained one of the astronauts how to take the 360 degree uh, images, panoramas, and they stitched it all together. But you can find this on our website on artsandculture.google.com and uh, explore for yourself. And now this is where I want to uh, begin about heritage preservation. So what I've shown you is basically the, the larger story of what we've been doing at Google Arts and Culture for a number of years. And since I recently started about a year and a half ago, my focus has been on from everything from ancient monuments to digital art and everything in between. As you can imagine, that's not, uh, that's not an easy thing. And we have a lot of projects that we are working on. But I just wanted to present two projects that we did to give you context to the project that we will then uh, be showing later. So preserving digital art, how will it survive? That is the exact title. You can look it up on YouTube and watch it. It's a very short video. I think it's under three minutes. We partnered with uh, Rhizome, which is a uh, nonprofit based in the New Museum in New York City, with using, basically using technology today, using Google Cloud, to emulate the software and web browsers from the 80s and 90s and early 2000s to bring digital art that was created by artists back online because it's inaccessible today due to digital obsolescence. And we've done this in partnering with Vince Cerf, one of the fathers of the internet, uh, who uh, works at Google as well. So that's a, that's a story and a project you can look up later. I'm actually from Mayan archaeology. Before I joined Google, I was working uh, in the jungles of, uh, of Central and South America, 
for short times, mostly living in Europe in the States, but my interest in the, in the Maya is extremely, uh, is extremely clear, as I mentioned earlier about the ancient Mexico and the books. So we did a project with the British Museum that is still continuing, actually, and this is called Preserving Maya Heritage. Here's an example of a 19th century explorer from, uh, from the UK who went and took photographs of Mayan art and heritage in the 19th century when he arrived, cleared the space. This is in Guatemala, actually. This is the image that was used. Uh, this is the glass plate, the negative that has been scanned at high resolution to zoom in and see because uh, something I want to point out is that this art that he saw, no one knew what this what this really was. Of course, the people who lived there, the locals, they knew. Uh, the Maya represent one of the largest indigenous populations that still lives uh, on, on the planet. They're directly connected with their roots. But in terms of communication and communicating through image to the rest of the world, he basically built the camera himself in the, in the 19th century, took these images, and this is how everyone learned about the Maya. And he thought that this was just art, but now it is today. We know that it's language that is being deciphered. We not only took images or used laser, um, sorry, um, scanning with a tabletop scanner, we also made 3D models of this as well. So you can find all this online. I'd recommend checking it out. So uh, now I will hand it over to Liz. Okay. Uh, thanks, Chance. So, um, SciArc, most of you have probably heard of Google. You may have not heard of SciArc before. We're a small nonprofit uh, based in Oakland, California. Um, and our mission is uh, to capture, share, and archive the world's cultural heritage. So, we've been doing this since uh, 2003. Um, and really, the whole vision behind this is, as Chance said, you know, these places. Uh, help us understand who we are, where we've come from, and, and we believe in the power of these places to ignite wonder, curiosity, and promote a shared sense of understanding. Um, and so we hope to we hope to do that through our work. Um, we were actually founded um, by a gentleman named Ben Kassira, um, who is a, was an Iraqi-born uh, engineer who immigrated to the states. And uh, in 2001, when these uh, Buddhas uh, in Afghanistan were destroyed. He was sitting at home watching TV and was so struck by this event uh, because there was no record of the site. Um, he had developed uh, through his engineering and a technology company uh, one of the first uh, commercially available 3D laser scanners or LIDAR systems. And so he thought, you know, we have this great technology that can be used to map our built environment. Uh, somebody should be using it to preserve our heritage. Um, so he founded SciArc with his wife uh, in 2003 uh, as part of their family foundation and we were uh, since spun off as our own independent uh, organization in 2008. Uh, and since then we've done work uh, on over 200 sites on all seven continents. Uh, so the range of sites that we cover um, varies quite a bit. Um, all, all built, uh, um, you know, man-made structures. Uh, we don't really do much in the natural world. Um, but, you know, really well-known uh, places uh, like the Tower of London or the Sydney Opera House or the iconic uh, Moai on Easter Island, um, but also, you know, other sites that, that may have, you know, are d developing uh, world-renowned. So a site of Bagan, which we'll talk more about, uh, is up for inscription on the UNESCO World Heritage List. Um, and then we've done a lot of work in the U.S. where we're based on, on national parks sites. 
our work uh, focuses really in three different uh, areas. So every project that we do is really in support of these three areas. So uh, recovery, uh, this, I'll start with that because it's kind of, it's core to what we do and really speaks to the founding uh, of the organization. So the idea is, was when we were founded was let's create this digital archive of these sites that if anything happens to the physical structures, the data within our archive could be used to reconstruct. Um, and we've since had several instances of that. And so here's one example of a, a structure in Uganda. It's the Royal Kasubi Tombs. About uh, six months after it was documented and, and archived with us, it was lost to a fire. Um, and so after the fire, we were able to provide data to uh, the, the local caretakers of the site as well as uh, UNESCO. Um, and they've actually since uh, reconstructed uh, the structure. Um, so that's kind of the, the catastrophic um, example, but we also, so many of the projects that we do actually are centered around active conservation work that's happening. Um, so we work with archaeologists, architects, uh, heritage managers um, to understand, you know, ongoing projects and be able to provide them with better documentation uh, so that they can uh, do their jobs. So usually that's, that's drawings, um, that's maps. Um, and we do also do training and workshops. Um, uh, the gentleman that introduced us mentioned Syria. We, we've had an ongoing project there where we've been training Syrian professionals um, in neighboring Lebanon. Um, and this is actually a photograph from a training that was done in Lebanon. Um, and they then went back into Syria and actually have documented six sites there. Um, and then the, the final part of our mission is really about the discovery of these places. So how can we use this data um, to help people connect to these sites? Um, especially using new and emerging technologies. So um, we've got this rich 3D data set. So the bottom picture there is an example from a museum, the Ars Electronica Museum in Austria, um, where they've done life-size 3D projection using a number of our data sets. Um, and then of course with the advances in virtual reality, uh, we, we're doing a lot in that space. We'll, we'll show uh, some from the project that we did with Google, but also we've got a free educational app that's uh, out there on the Oculus Rift and the Go and the Samsung Gear. It's called Masterworks and it features uh, four different uh, heritage sites from around the world that you can go in, explore in 3D and actually learn from experts on the site. So the way that we work, um, as I mentioned, you know, we work very closely with different heritage institutions to identify their needs. So everyone from UNESCO and ICOMOS, the International Council on Monuments and Sites, to various ministries of culture. Um, and then we pair that funding with donors. So we receive funding from individuals, corporations, foundations, um, and that allows us to do a project. Um, so we're really you know, matching different uh, like geographic interests and uh, with heritage needs. Um, and then we have a number of partnerships on the, the academic side and also this outreach side, whether it's Google Arts and Culture or also Oculus I mentioned, to really like fuel the research and exploration of these data sets. So I'll give you one example just to show the, the tools that we use and kind of talk through um, uh, one, one example of a project. So this is Ayutthaya in Thailand. It's the uh, old capital um, of Thailand. Uh, and there are a number of sites that are spread out throughout the city. Uh, our work focused on those three central chetties there uh, called Wat Pra Si Sempet. Okay, so this, this is the site and we were actually approached um, by UNESCO and the Thai Fine Arts Department 
they needed help monitoring the site because in 2011 they had major flooding. Uh, and the monuments are subsiding. They're sinking and, and the chetties have started to lean. So they asked us to come out. Um, we went out, uh, the, the focus of the work was walk across the sandpit. And we used uh, our three main technologies to document it. So LIDAR, uh, photogrammetry, um, and then also aerial, aerial photogrammetry using drones. So we capture a huge amount of data on site. Um, and then all of that is backed up and processed, um, brought together so individual photos and the point cloud, the LiDAR point cloud are registered um, using different software tools to create a high resolution photorealistic 3D model. So this is all based off of the real data on the site. Um, and then that model is used to generate uh, architectural drawings. So here you can actually see the lean of that one chetty. Uh, and better maps of the site. So the, the partners on site get all of this data, they get these outputs, um, and then we were able to use that same model to actually create the explorable 3D environment for the Masterworks uh, VR experience. So within here you can click on different, uh, learn actually from archaeologists on site and explore these places. Um, so it's a good example of you know, not only addressing like a real conservation need, but providing access to the data. And we talked about heritage at risk. Um, one of the things that I did want to point out, as Chance mentioned, you know, it's something that's ongoing. Um, so the work that we do is, you know, is responding to these various crises. Um, so just really in the last few years, um, this is a handful of examples that, that have happened. Um, everyone, I think, is quite familiar with Palmyra in Syria and the loss there. Um, but we also have had a lot of uh, damage to Sana'a and Yemen uh, because of conflict. Um, and then the Timbuktu in Mali. Uh, earthquakes are another major factor, so Bagan we've mentioned, uh, also Kathmandu, um, and Mexico City uh, suffered a major earthquake that damaged a number of sites uh, just last year. Um, and then one of the other things that we're watching is the impacts of climate change on a number of these sites. So a site in uh, Louisiana, which is already almost completely submerged, and then uh, the site of Easter Island, um, the New York Times just did a, a very big piece on this where they're losing a lot of this heritage and they're actually having to make decisions about what sites they try to do mitigation efforts on and which ones they, they document and are going to let uh, disappear. Uh, a couple of our upcoming projects to give you an idea of, kind of different types of, of structures. So we're going to be doing some work in, in Mexico City at, at the Metropolitan Cathedral there. Um, the Jefferson Memorial at home in the U.S. Uh, has a uh, biological film that's growing on the marble uh, that they need, the Park Service needs help mapping um, and uh, they're trying to figure out how to actually remove it from the structures. It's, it's a bigger problem for a number of the monuments there in the National Mall. And then uh, Ored in Macedonia um, where we're going to be doing a number of the, the frescoes within some of these historic buildings. Um, so for those of you that are interested, we'll talk more about the open heritage, which I hope you, you explore. But if you're interested in helping our mission, a couple ways to get involved, you can go to SIRC.org, uh, learn more, social media, um, and you know any donations always help us do what we need to do. So with that, I'll uh, turn it back over to Chance to talk about open heritage. Yep, thank you. We will actually both be talking a lot about open heritage because this is, uh, it's been a project that we worked on uh, 
we've been working on it for over a year now. And it's, it's been an amazing feeling uh, of relief to finally get it out there to the public. And it is only the beginning. And let me give you a brief idea of what it is. The concept is SciArc, as you've seen, has been working for a number of years documenting heritage around the world. Google Arts and Culture has been working on digitizing and, and sharing art collections uh, with institu uh, and institutions to the general public in many different ways. By combining forces, we've launched Open Heritage on April 16th in San Francisco just recently together. And it is the story of presenting and sharing the data that SciArc has been uh, collecting and with all the partners in the local institutions and state governments, et cetera, or the, um, in each location in more than 15 countries and more than, 22, more than 25 iconic locations around the world. So with that, I just want to show a very short, less than a minute video to give you some context. And we need sound, if there's sound. No, there's no sound. Okay. And so what Open Heritage, as you've seen, what it represents is, is a lot, uh, really, because of the fact that, and I'm going to show you what, the, uh, what it looks like online. So this is the project page. We're going to walk through it to kind of show you what you can find if you go to. Um, it's uh, g.co slash openheritage is the short link. But if you search for Open Heritage, SciArc, um, or Google Arts and Culture, you'll find it. So, like any of our projects, let me just adjust this a little. Like any of our projects, we, uh, we produce project pages like this on Google Arts and Culture. And I, yeah, would you want to say something about yeah, uh, what so, the project page looks like? So what, you know, one of the things that we wanted to capture is, you know, a, a lot of people I think have, have come to this not necessarily knowing, you know, who SciArc is, uh, why we're doing this. So we've included a feature actually from our CEO that talks about our path to this point. Um, one of the things that's always, you know, was in our initial mission statement was to provide open access to this data. 
Uh, we're a really small organization. We're about 10 people in Oakland. Uh, and that's proved to be a huge challenge for us. We've got terabytes of data. Um, so figuring out a way to actually make this stuff available and make it available in a format that uh, was consumable uh, was a big challenge. And so we, we talk about that you know, openly because uh, over the years, you know, we've always wanted to do this, but it, it's, been, it's been a challenge to do it. And so with the partnership with Google has finally made that possible. Um, so you can learn a little bit about us. Uh, we'll come back to Begon. Um, but for each of the, the locations, so we've put together this like expedition overview. So it talks about what we did on site. Some of these sites are massive. We may have only done one portion. Uh, it talks about the areas. Uh, it talks about who we worked with. Um, we've got you know, a local site here, uh, Brandenburg. Um, so you can, how do I? You use the arrow. No? No. I'll just click. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, so you can see, you know, who we worked with, what we did, um, learn a little bit more about the site. Sorry, I'm in trouble. There we go. Okay. Um, if there's 360s, and then in some cases, you know, we even have the, um, even have 3D models. I cannot get to the back. It's okay. Button. I'll go back. It's fine. <laughs> it's over here. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so there's 3D models. Um, Chance maybe wants to show his favorite site. Yeah. Uh, actually, surprisingly, <laughs> I actually got to work on the Brandenburg Gate project yes. uh, back yeah. before I joined Google. So that's a, a fun one for me because I, I love Berlin and I wanted a great excuse to come again. Um, so also, of course, for Republica too. Uh, so, as I mentioned before, I am a Mayan archaeologist, and so I'll be biased here in showing one of my favorite uh, 3D models, which is uh, from Chichen Itza, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It is an ancient astronomical observatory, and this, these are the remains as you see it today. Of course, if you go to the site, there are certain things you can and cannot see. One of the things you cannot see if you go to the site is can you rotate the building upside down and zoom in to be able to see those inner uh, pathways and corridors because that is actually the layout that the Maya used to look through windows to, uh, to basically study the sky, the night sky and the, day, and the day sky. So let me go back here. I think we have an interesting... The formatting of the screen is not... It's incredible that it's not. Oh, wait, I know why. There we go. Yeah. Sorry about that. It's just a question of zooming <laughs> and apparently the yeah. dimensions and resolution of the screen. So, uh, did you want to talk yeah. about another one? So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a big diversity of sites. We're, we're covering a, a range of time periods and cultures. Um, and, you know, we've got the exhibits, and, and then we've also been able to use this poly viewer to actually incorporate the 3D models. Um, so for some of these sites, it's, you know, he showed uh, the Caracol, but this is one of the cl cliff-dwelling structures in the American Southwest, Mesa Verde. Uh, it's one of my personal favorite sites. Um, I visited this as a kid, and it was very influential on me personally. Um, but to understand how these things are actually constructed, there's, there's about 600 of these alcove structures at Mesa Verde. Um, you know, you never really get to see it like this. You can see the, the architecture of the kiva, kivas being subterranean. These were ceremonial centers. Um, you can actually see the division on this site. There's a wall right here. 
uh, separating the, the more sacred spaces from the more public spaces. So it's a really cool tool to be able to actually just, um, you know, understand the layout of the site and actually see a lot of that detail um, that you, you may never get to, to see up close. Uh, and that site in particular, actually, you have to, you can visit it with a park service guide, um, but you've got to go up a 30-foot ladder, you've got to squeeze through narrow areas. So in terms of accessibility, uh, this is something that uh, the park service has actually been really excited about this project because they can open it up to more people than actually get to physically visit it. And so, as you see, we have the, the expedition overviews of Cyrix's work there. We have the 3D models paired side by side with them. We have many other sites, as I mentioned before, more than 15 countries represent the first wave of the sites that we're releasing uh, to the public as open data, and that, that number will continue yeah. as well. And, uh, but we also have stories about, so for example, uh, a writer who was actually the host of the BBC's uh, Museum of Lost Objects radio uh, podcast, I'd recommend uh, listening to it, there are two seasons, uh, Kanish, he writes a story about how lasers can preserve millennia of human history. It's a really interesting read from his take on the concept of, of preserving heritage using innovative technology, as well as an editorial feature story we put together called The Tools of the Trade, because we've mentioned this technology, you've seen some images and video of it, but you're, wonder, you're probably wondering can I learn what is 3D laser scanning or photogrammetry in two or three sentences? Yes, you can if you click there and explore. We have some simple images and video to explain. You can also travel around the globe with CyArk on some of their uh, various projects that they've worked on and watch some of the videos from their YouTube channel. And I believe now we're going to talk a, a little bit more about, specifically, why it's called Open Heritage is the open data access uh, point of view and how you can all use it yourself. So for each of these projects, um, if you go through the exhibit, um, oh, still no arrows, okay. So um, like I said, you can learn about what we did there. I'm gonna flip through these. Thought I was going to. The okay, yeah. there we go. Um, so you learn about the context of the site, you learn about where we worked. Um, you can see some of the outputs that we created for like the fine arts department. Um, but at the end, and this is what I wanted to get to, it actually gives you a summary of what we've captured at the site. Um, and right there, you can actually request access to the data. So if I go ahead and click this, um, what it does is it launches our form. So really simple. Uh, collect minimal information. Um, you got to choose which site you're requesting the data for. Um, and then uh, you hit submit. Lost the mouse. Oh, it's down. Is it to the right or left? No, it's, it's up. It's up, okay. <laughs> um, and what you have to do is all this data is being licensed under a Creative Commons um, attribution non-commercial license. So it doesn't matter if you're associated with a university or if you're just a hobbyist and you want access to this, as long as you're agreeing to the terms, you get access. So you submit the form and a couple hours later, you're actually gonna get uh, signed URL links to that data to download. Um, do you wanna so see we can what, go back. Yeah. yeah, yeah, so let's show you. So for IUTIA, the site I was just looking at, 
Um, one of the links you get is a report of what's available. So um, what, we've, what we've made available is all of our raw data. So it's the LiDAR um, scan data. And you can see how many scans there are, the file size, whether or not there's photo on the scans or not. Um, and then all the photogrammetric data. So in this case, it's 12,000 images. So it's quite a bit of data to download. Um, but all this is uh, possible because of the relationship with Google. So this is all being uh, served through Google Cloud. Um, I, and we, Cyric actually controls all the access to this data. Um, and we're going to be adding more sites over time. So once you download this, for those not very familiar with LiDAR, um, you can bring in all the individual scans. Uh, there are a bunch of open source actually softwares that you can use. This is a commercial software. Um, but for that site in a UTA, you can get down to the level of zooming in on the bricks. Um, so this is the data set that you get access to. Um, on the photogrammetry side, uh, just to show you, I think this is only the aerial data uh, for that same site. Um, but all the, all the files that you get you know, are the individual files, and we've actually included uh, camera positions as well. So um, when we've done the photogrammetry, we've positioned each of those images, you get that information as well. Um, so you can take it and do amazing things as people are already doing. So uh, we launched two weeks ago. Uh, this is a, an organization in Europe that has taken the data for um, Corinth. Uh, this is the, the Fountain of Pyrene in Corinth in Greece. Um, and what they've done is layered on top of our data um, they've remeshed it, created this 3D model, and then they've done a reconstruction of what uh, the site may have looked like. It's um, really amazing. Yeah. It's really, really well. I, they had this up, I think, within a week of us launching this. So this is the kind of thing that we're so excited about because we, we just capture what's there today. We're not interpreting it, but this is a huge interest for people that are excited about you know, Greek and Roman archaeology. What did it look like in the past? With this open, now anyone can do this. Um, and they've reposted it, they've reshared it under the correct terms. It's like a beautiful example of, of what's possible. So we're excited to see more of this. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I do need to, uh, to mention, because I didn't mention it back at the very beginning, but the point that we're talking about data is that not only every, all the data that SciArc uh, is serving as part of the Open Heritage Project is still resting on their cloud, uh, Google Cloud accounts. It's not Google Arts and Culture owned at all. But that's also a point I wanted to raise about all the other art collections and the thousands of images that I've shown you at the very beginning of the talk. None of that is owned by Google or Google Arts and Culture. That is, the, the content rights always remain in the holders of those museums and, and institutions. And they have the option to even remove it at any point in the future if they, if they suit, so uh, choose. So that's an important point. I, I, um, I'm usually asked this question, so I figure I'll just answer it before I'm asked. Um, so that brings us to the story, is because we just used the example of, of uh, what, they, what Rice Media did in, uh, with Corinth. What we did is we chose one site in particular to work with SciArc to bring it online to people in a very unique way. And um, that site has begun. And we did this with, uh, narrated by Bethany Hughes, who's a BBC presenter uh, and, and documentary filmmaker. Uh, the story was written by Alexander Green. She's a British Museum curator for Southeast Asian art. And all, of course, all the content was provided to 3D models from before and after an earthquake. Uh, for this experience. And we call this uh, Begone Discover a Heritage Site at Risk. 
and it is a new Google Arts and Culture lab experiment. It's accessible on desktop or mobile, so by going to go.co slash begone, or you find it on the project page, you will be presented with this. Uh, once it loads, and we are pushing the limits of what browsers can do. Uh, we're pushing the limits of 3D storytelling. There's even a VR element that you may want to explore. There's a lot to, uh, to kind of explain here. So I'm just going to walk through. I'm actually just going to start the experience and let Bethany uh, explain the story. Bagan, an ancient city on the Irrawaddy River in Myanmar, was once home to over 3,000 Buddhist temples, stupas, and monasteries. Built between the 9th and 13th centuries on a seismic fault, many of the spectacular sites here have been damaged or destroyed by the earthquakes that rock the region. The years have taken a huge toll on those that remain. Some have been renovated, others have been rebuilt, but centuries' worth of local heritage has been lost forever. Digital conservation is helping the local community to restore some of the most damaged temples. Thanks to modern technology, we're preserving a lasting legacy for Bagan. Thank you, Bethany. Um, so you have the opportunity to see that you, have, you can begin the journey automatically, or you can, uh, I just want to show you, there is a map, so there are multiple locations that you can explore on this journey. And again, I'm going to find, there we go. So I'm just going to go ahead and, and click and let her explain the beginning of what this story is. And we're just going to show some uh, brief parts of it, and you can explore it for yourself. We're approaching the Ananda Okjang, or Ananda Brick Monastery. Built in the late 18th century, that's the 12th century in the Myanmar calendar, by Bagan's royal archivist, the temple is one of many historic structures damaged by the devastating earthquake of 2016. And so when I arrive into this structure, I can rotate around, I can move my arrow keys forward and back, like almost like a, an, it's an educational video game, in essence, that has curated information inside uh, for you to learn about why this temple is so significant, what the murals are, are actually displaying, because we had a curator you know, write these stories. There are very uh, short annotations that you can find here. You can actually circumnavigate it the same way that, uh, that you would at the site. However, if you go to the site today, because of the earthquake in August of 2016, you cannot access this temple because it is damaged, so they won't allow anyone to physically go inside for, for obvious reasons. So what we've done is produce a way for people to learn about this temple, learn about these beautiful murals, and as it loads, depending on your internet speed, etc., of course, and on your mobile phone, you can do it in a smaller version or uh, uh, less less intense version. But for example, I can click here and learn about this, this artwork. This the walls mural. of this central shrine room are painted with scenes from Buddhist cosmology. Okay, I'm going to stop it, but it's just a minute and 15 seconds to learn about Buddhist cosmology. You can also explore, uh, hot, there are some hot spots that we have inside about the local community that lives there and uses these structures today 
as, as ritual buildings. These are not ancient buildings that, that only tourists go to visit that are, not, that are no longer used. I don't know if you want to say something more about... So, so we, we work on any of the projects that we do, we work really closely with the people that manage the site. Um, and you know, our team spent about two and a half weeks here, really got to know the people that actually um, it, like guard the sites. A number of the sites are, are maintained by families there. Um, and so it's a big part of the work that we do is actually connecting with these people, understanding the importance of these places for them, um, and trying to capture some of that and share that story. Yeah. And so I'm going to move, move on from this temple to the, uh, to the next, if I can see. It is, yeah, okay. So... Moving towards the Kamen Gazedi temple. And I'll actually mute her, uh, if she doesn't mind. Yeah, but you can, you can listen, you can turn the audio on or off, of course. By arriving to the next temple, this is a point cloud uh, of that temple. You cannot go inside, but what we've done, um, you can go inside physically, I think, yeah. at the structure. And it has been documented by Sire, but in terms of a visual tool to present it, we wanted to also provide more annotations, like 360-degree stereoscopic VR video, so you can actually see what it looks like while Cyarch is working there at the site, setting up a laser scanner. Uh, you, if I turn the sound up, you can hear the birds chirping and the wind blowing, and you can rotate around. You can see this in VR as well. So it's kind of a um, kind of a documentary form uh, within this entire 3D uh, lab experiment in storytelling. Thank you. And so you can rotate around this temple. You can, uh, I think there's even an example here. There's an interview with UNESCO as well, uh, because Syarc has been working with UNESCO there from before and after the earthquake, yeah. as well as the university from Canada yep. to Carleton University, university well. too. And I'm just gonna go ahead and continue to the last temple Finishing to show you. Finishing our journey. We had and I'll just explain it because it's uh, easier to, uh, to hear in this case of presenting. So this is a structure that also faced damage during the August 2016 earthquake. And it's incredibly vibrant in its colors, both inside and outside. I mean, that, that attests to the quality of the data that Syarc is capturing, both inside and outside at the site. And there are interesting things that you can do with 3D data when you go to visualize it that you wouldn't immediately think would be possible, but in the same way that you produce floor plans and drawings for architects, if you have a 3D model of the inside and outside of a temple, you can also slice it in half and see. There's actually, there are five Buddhas inside of this temple, and I've never been to Bagan myself. It took me a while to, re to realize that it was a temple with five doorways until I rotated around the 3D model and recognized that because I really thought it was a four, uh, four entrance uh, temple. So there's many different things that you can find in this journey. There's a and, lot and of- And these types of drawings we use you know, to actually yeah. help the conservators and architects be able to actually make decisions about the structure as well. Yeah, exactly. We also have this uh, visualization. There's another hotspot showing the reconstruction. This is the point cloud that is produced. And then with points and using photogrammetry, you add the texture and the 3D models are then processed by Cyarc. But what you can do, because in this case, Cyarc was at the site before the earthquake and after. It's a very unique case. That's usually not the case. Uh, you can actually see the before and the after because what you're looking at is the part that was damaged in 2016. And with that, I will come almost, almost finished to the close because, of course, you also want to be able to fly inside and walk around. You can, you can go around and explore. 
You can go inside, uh, you can walk around outside as well. And I mentioned before about VR. So we're using WebVR, which is a new feature on the Google Chrome browser. It's really uh, experimental in this case. On your phone, if you have a Google Cardboard, I didn't bring it here to show you, but if you've ever seen a Google Cardboard, you can actually drop uh, your phone into it and you can explore the inside of this temple in different ways. And it doesn't matter what phone you have, what browser you have, we want to make this accessible to anyone. We're not only doing this on Chrome, it's available on Safari, mobile Safari, it's available on Firefox as well. So from Google Cardboard to Daydream, which gives you the option of a controller, you can actually move around in these temples and at one point in one temple we turn out the lights so that your controller is a torch or a flashlight. So you can walk around and explore and get and move in closer and, and uh, it's kind of a, it's an, it's an interesting dramatic effect uh, of course, but it's, but it's a, another point and way to communicate the story, right, to, to show it to someone. So that's Daydream. Then you move up to even, or I, I haven't even tested it, Oculus Go was just released. It may actually work, I, I would believe so, it works on that too. Because it does work on Oculus Rift, it works on the HTC Vive, on Chrome and Firefox. So if you have a desktop computer with a Vive setup, you just have to flip a few of the flags in Chrome flags and you can go find this information online. But you can explore it in its highest resolution on a high-end VR device, inside the first temple and the last temple. And so with that, I would like to, we would both like to just thank you for your attention, danke, and we're happy to answer any questions that you may have. Thank you so much, that was really interesting. Um, we have nine minutes, so please be brief with your questions. Uh, thank you for your talk. Um, I feel like you make culture sound very easy. It always looks like a holiday ad, so I, I think I have a problem with that. Um, and also I can't help but feel like, even though I see that your work is really important, um, I feel like you're kind of promoting a new form of cultural colonialism. Um, and I was wondering, how do you include the locals, the people whose immediate heritage it is, into the process? Yeah, yeah uh, good, very good question. Uh, I, I know that that's, uh, that's something that we're really sensitive to. Um, the, every project for us, we work so closely with the people that are managing the site. So the majority of these projects develop because they have a need and uh, they need you know, assistance. Um, and so we're able to bring outside funding to support our work. They get all of the data and we produce uh, like the drawings and the other things that I showed uh, are specifically for them. So uh, you know, we work with the site managers and the people there to figure out what's gonna provide real benefit to them and actually help them do their jobs. Um, a lot of that's not part of this in part because you know, there are also restrictions on we only launched 25 sites. Some of these sites are restricted um, because of local needs uh, or, or preferences. Um, so, you know, they maintain uh, control over what we're able to share. Um, of course, we want it all to be open, um, but in some cases, there are, you know, really sensitive uh, subjects, and, and it can't be. 
Um, and that's, you know, for us, it's more important that we respect that and that we maintain the relationships with the communities uh, so that we can continue to do the work. Because even if it sits in an archive, um, you know, and it's not as readily consumable, uh, there's still a huge benefit when something, you know, happens at the site to have that record. How about Google? How about Google? So, in my opinion, I mean, we're working with CIRC on this project. We've worked with the British Museum and the Guatemalan government uh, on the Preserving Maya Heritage Project. So, all of the projects that I'm working on in terms of, like, heritage preservation, especially if there are sites physically, uh, not digital art, which is kind of its own thing, this is extremely important. We work with uh, INA if we're working in Mexico. We're working with uh, the state, local institutions, the site archaeologists. For example, for the British Museum Maya project, before we even got it started, the British Museum went to the site, all the sites that we wanted to, to work on, and, and worked with the local communities and the, the Museum of Anthropology in Guatemala City. Um, even when we launched the event, for example, we had an event in London, and a week later we had it in Guatemala City. So we, we work with all of the local communities and help they, they find this extremely helpful and, and even the response that we've gotten from Open Heritage is amazing. I have people contacting me, I'm sure you have stories as well, from around the world that are asking, I'm, I work on this committee in Guatemala, for example, you have this data that's available on Tikal, and I want to know how can I use it for education. And that's the thing that's, that we've made available, is that they can use it. That's the beauty of it. Thank you for the question. I want to go through so that everyone who has one can have their say. Yeah, thanks. Uh, impressive amount of work and um, I'm sure there's, well, you've demonstrated a lot of the really positive stuff this can do. Um, you obviously frame this in terms of heritage at risk and I'm interested, you've hinted towards some of these things, but I'm interested uh, as to what you as individuals and your organizations think could be the possible risks associated with the, the digital practices that you're promoting. So you've hinted at data ownership in your talk, but beyond that, both philosophically and practically, what do you see as the possible risks of this kind of uh, action? Yeah, I, you know, I think um, uh, one of the things that we've had to think about in opening this up is, you know, whether people will abide by the terms, right? And um, we, we've gotten questions around, you know, why, um, you know, why license it uh, through, you know, the, this whole idea of ownership and why to license it in the first place and um, licensing it in this way actually is the best thing that we can do it, in terms of opening it up to actually protect um, you know the sites themselves they, their biggest concern is that you know third parties gain um, and that revenue doesn't come back to the sites or that this does so it, you know um, there's always been concerns when we've done projects around how that might impact uh, visitors that come to the site, which is a, a source of revenue, um, and so with all the with all the sites that we've opened up, it's been a discussion. Um, most of them are actually very excited. You know, the the majority are excited about the promotion. Uh, it raises the awareness of the work that they're doing. You know, some of these different entities um, don't get as much recognition. Um, and so just having this available and having people learn about these stories I, I think is very positive, but there, there is a risk I think that people will take this, you know, not abide by the terms and we're strategizing on the best way to, to deal with that. Um, because we've already had I think like a thousand 
downloads of the data. Um, and for us, that's like, you know, we're, we're small enough, so figuring out the best way to respond to that is, is something I think we need to do. Uh, monitor and, and, you know, it's, it's, I, I think it's the same challenge of opening anything up. Um, that there are going to be bad actors and it's just a question of, you know, I don't think it's going to be the majority by, by any stretch. We have a next question over here. Thank you for your project and your talk. Um, as we all know, documentation is not the same as conservation or preservation. And um, I'd like to ask you how you would react to something I've heard before, which is, well, yeah, it's sad that the site is destroyed, but we have the data, we can rebuild it. And as an archaeologist, I have to say, <laughs> we can't rebuild it. We can rebuild some image of it or something right. that looks similar on the first look. Um, is there something you could say about that? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I would say that it's never going to replace it. Um, uh, documentation is not uh, the same as conservation. I, I think it's a, it's a battle that we, uh, you know, or a discussion we engage in frequently because we, we do documentation. We're, we're not even involved in, in any of the stabilization or conservation efforts. Um, but the majority of those projects start with documentation. Um, and I think it's always going to be better to have, you know, something than nothing. Um, and we would never say that this replaces um, ha having those, those sites, but, um, you know, in, in situations of catastrophic loss or, or major damage like at Begon, uh, it's incredibly useful to, to have this information and to be able to, to use it to respond. Yeah. And I, I would like to also add, so I'm an archaeologist myself, so doing any of these projects has to go through my filter as I see it as an archaeology project, so I completely respect that, uh, that question. For the, as an example, she mentioned the Bagan example. There are many examples for SIRC. I just wanted to mention, so the Maya Preservation Project, that's an example where plaster casts were made by a British explorer in the 19th century, that the original objects are no longer there, or they have decayed so you can't read the art any longer. And the, the archive of plaster casts in the archives of the British Museum is not accessible to the public in any way, or epigraphers or researchers themselves. So what we've done is we've 3D laser scanned them, structured light scanning, and provided that information to epigraphers and to the public, and back to the site themselves so that they, this actually represents the best record, the captured image of the record of that art that is, that is now lost, or we are losing it. So we are very conscious uh, of this in all of the projects, so thank you. Okay. One last question. I just wanted to invite you all to our booth where we're presenting uh, various uh, Google and Arts, Arts and Culture um, exhibitions, yeah. um, our machine learning experiments, um, Draw to Art, uh, we have uh, at our stand as well as um, a selection uh, also from our lab in Paris, um, the art palette, uh, and we do have a happy hour today at uh, 6 p.m., so please join us. Yes. yes, the lab experiments are a lot of fun. That's another whole topic that I'm just, we're presenting a lab experiment in 3D storytelling. There are many others, and you can find videos and more about it online, too. So, thank you. Elizabeth, Chance, thank you for your work. <laughs> <laughs>